Hello, I'm Marit Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to a wide range of wellness professionals ready to inform and inspire. Today we're talking about low vision, what it is and where to find help. My guest is Belinda Liebowitz, occupational therapist with a special interest in low vision from Johannesburg. Welcome, Belinda. Thank you, Mariette, and thank you for having me. To our listeners, after our conversation, it will be fun question time. Belinda, could you please tell us more about your work? Thank you. So it's a bit of a roundabout route and before we start um, I'm afraid that since we haven't had any rain yet the hay fever is really getting to my my throat so I apologize. Um, many years ago, 37 years in fact, um, I had left occupational therapy and a friend of mine asked me to go and help out at the um, Civilian Blind Society. I said to her, you know, I don't do OT anymore. And she said, please just go. And I went there and it was a real eye-opener, pardon the pun. What happened was early on when I was there, I met an, an optometrist, Hazel, who has a special interest in low vision. And she and I were attending a course. It was the first low vision conference in South Africa, well, first for me anyway. And after meeting Hazel, it just explained so much. And I understood that not every optometrist, although they've learned about it, does low vision, as not every OT or not every physio or any of those people actually know anything about low vision. So what I learned then was that there are so many tips and techniques and with every patient you can give them something that will change their lives. And I must admit that until I met you some years ago I had never heard the term low vision and I remember how you explained it to me. So would you please explain to our listeners what low vision means? Perfect. So if you consider... Two walls, as we've got over here. If one wall is perfect sight and one wall is total blindness, one step away from either, you're in the realm of low vision. And low vision is a very broad concept, but it's a dynamic state. So for certain activities, you need a lot of vision to be independent, and for certain, you don't need so much. So one can help patients quite easily. Low vision is any pathology where the vision cannot be corrected to 2020. And I suppose that covers all age groups. All age groups. My youngest patient ever was eight months old, and our oldest is over 100. It's a very, very broad base. What causes low vision, Belinda? So low vision comes from various illnesses, um, pathologies, such as the most common for us is age-related macular degeneration. And I must also add that visual impairment is the biggest disability in South Africa. And sadly, 
most people aren't aware of that. And so much of your information that you take in and so much learning is done through the visual aspect. So the, the type of problems that cause low vision is macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Stargardt's disease, diabetic retinopathy, um, traumatic injuries such as car accidents or head injuries as a result of blunt trauma, etc. Many of those things cause low vision as well. How is a low vision assessment different <clears throat> from a regular eye examination performed by an optometrist? Okay, so um, there are not many optometrists. So you, you're not a specialist. You have a special interest. So in optometry, there are many special fields of interest. And how the assessment differs is in a normal optometric assessment, you sit in front of a, a machine called a ferropter and they just drop lenses in, but you are facing forward. In a low vision assessment, it takes much longer. It takes about an hour and a half. It's a very labor intensive assessment. One of the reasons as well is that people get tired, but we are looking at many, many aspects. And so what will happen in a low vision assessment is the patient um, comes in and the optometrist will just put them in front of an autorefractor, which just gives a reading. And that kind of gives a basis to start from. Then you sit in the chair, but instead of sitting in front of the ferropter, they use a trial frame, which is a funny shaped pair of glasses, which has space to drop the lenses into. Oh. And what we're looking at in the low vision assessment is to give the patient the best possible corrected vision. Remember I said it's not corrected to 2020. And what one is looking at is how does the patient actually use that vision? So there is, there's functional vision and visual function. So we are looking at what is the patient able to do with the vision that they have. And in a normal test, in all um, optometric testing, you're looking at visual acuity and you need to check visual fields as well. And that is how much a person can see. So the assessment takes very long and very often I sit in on the assessment and that gives me a very good framework from where I then start working. But I can then also see when the patient is doing their assessment, what are they doing? You know, in many cases, patients haven't realized how much vision they might have lost in one eye. Because it happens because, gradually. Because it happens gradually and because there is a dominance. Wherever you have two things, the stronger one will lead. And what happens with people is that they, sometimes the, the, the vision has actually been fairly suppressed in that eye, and that's a pathology on its own. But in many cases, because there's a very big difference between the eyes, the dominant one is doing everything. 
And that is then important. Now, where that brings a very important issue is where you have a change in dominance. So if you broke an arm, for example, and you now had to use your non-dominant arm, you would manage, but it's not only the physical act of using that arm. That arm is governed by the opposite side of the brain, and it takes on those characteristics. So in many cases, an ophthalmologist will say, um, you have very poor vision in one eye, but don't worry, you've got one excellent eye, and I'll see you in a year's time or 18 months, and you're good to go. And then the patient is battling because the way they work with that eye is not the way they always worked. And I do a lot of work with patients around that. Yeah. Belinda, could you say something more about dominance? Because I know there's more to it. Yes. So um, it's very interesting. And I think that the whole thing about profiling is very important because we are people living life differently. And one of the things is if people don't understand the way you're trying to teach them, you need to teach them the way they learn. And often when you then explain that to someone, they go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize. You might find that with your spouse or a colleague at work that you often are at loggerheads and it's because we don't speak in a manner that the other person understands. And so it's important that you start to do that. So in terms of vision, we read left to right. But the left eye reads right to left, which is it's quite interesting. Often in the testing situation, um, you'll be sitting there and you know what the chart looks like. There are usually five letters on a chart. And often the person starts reading from the other side. Now, that's not a problem when you are just giving single letters, it is a problem when you're reading. And often those people who are, for example, left eye dominant are not keen readers, but they also work differently in terms of, they don't like long wordy documents. They read because they have to for work, but they tend to use bullet form, etc. Do you want to just go back to the question that you were asking before? We were talking about, we were talking about the vision assessment, and okay. then you talked about the ophthalmologist who would say to someone, but you've got a good eye left. Why yeah. are you battling with one weak eye? Yes. And then you were talking about the fact that dominance plays a role. Okay, okay. So just to go back to the, the low vision assessment then, what happens is that one needs to look at the patient in totality. So you are looking, and, and the, the history, the case history is very important. When you're asking questions, you're asking questions to get an understanding of the patient. Every person is different, and we need to look at the patient's life and what their needs are and what they're having difficulty in work. Because very often someone will say, um, I have 10% vision or I have 40% vision. 
What does that mean? That means 40% of that chart or what other people could see at that level. But we've all learned through ESCOM um, in load shedding that you don't need so much vision for certain tasks. Where it is a problem is if you have a sudden outage and you were busy in your kitchen and now you don't know whether you've in fact switched things off. Whereas where you have had, you've known about an outage or you know about a pathology, you slowly learn to adapt to it. And in certain pathologies, there are certain things that we know the patient will struggle with. And if family is sitting in on the assessment, they can then see, oh my goodness, yes, he sees that quite well, or I didn't expect them to see that far. But it depends on whether the vision is falling into the seeing part of the eye. I see. So it very much depends on the way you put it across to the Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you need to work from a very positive point of view. Um, many people, they're going through loss. For many of them, they had no idea they had a problem. You often find somebody who's just finished studying and now they discover they have this problem. And what are they going to do with their life now? So it's really important that we assess, but we assess constantly with what the person needs. Very individualized yes, approach. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that explanation. Why is a multiple disciplinary team often necessary when someone with visual impairment needs help? Well, I think at the outset, if you think about it, so many people deal with each person in their daily life. For example, you think about a child. They are playing with their friends. They're trying to cope in school. They are copying from the board and... Um, the teacher's handwriting is not clear. In fact, that's something that we could maybe talk about just now is the perceptual issues around vision. But that's important that we look at all of that holistically and say, okay, so we've now got a teacher, we've got the parent, we've got therapists, We've got different therapists. The child might be going for speech and OT and physio. But it's important that we all understand the child's pathology and why certain things might be difficult for them. Would you like to carry on and talk about perceptual <clears throat> issues so, affecting vision? Um, so when we read, it's not only that we're understanding what we read, there are various things, sorry. Um, first of all, there's visual memory. Um, if I read a legal document, I have to read it at least three times. I read it the first time, the second time to make sense, and the third time hopefully to understand it. So for a patient with a visual impairment, they are looking at it the first time to try and recognize the letters. The second time they read it, they are more fluent. And the third time they've got um, clarity. 
Now, many of our patients have stopped reading long ago because they thought they were saving their vision. You are not saving your vision by not reading. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's important. We don't want you to strain your eyes, but we want you to read and use that vision as much as possible. So it's visual memory. Now, when you're copying from a board, if you don't have a good visual memory to go, the cat sat on the mat, look down and start writing that, you have to keep looking up and trying to find your way. You have a problem with position in space. And so you look at letters and you're not sure, is it a P or a Q or a B or a D? Um, visual memory is very important with everybody and particularly today's youngsters. They are taught in a very visual manner. So they are taught everything through TV or watching things. There's very little using their own imagination. And that is actually very sad. When we read books before or we listened to a radio, we were forming our own image of something and we were also enhancing our listening skills. So a lot of children today aren't doing that. If you are visually impaired, but your preferred method of taking information was visual, it's going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. So we need to teach them how to become more auditory. Um, but also, you might have that when you and your, your husband are trying to explain something new to each other, very often you fight and it's not because of anything other than the difference in your learning styles. If I show my husband something, he has to do it in order to learn. If I just show it to him, it's not as effective. Okay. This figure ground background, for many of our patients, when they look at something, it's like a Where's Wally picture. Everything is swimming and it's all over the show and it's just a clutter. So if we can isolate certain letters, which is what you have when you're doing a chart, it's the perfect lighting and the letters are perfectly spaced and they're very well printed. It's very different to your real situation in life. When you get a, a, a bank statement or you get a, a bill but they'd run out of ink. Oh, yes. And now you can't read it. Or you go into a restaurant and the lighting is really bad. If you just use your torch, it makes all the difference in the world. Let's go back to the professionals. Which professionals serve individuals in need of low vision services? Okay. So th there are many directions in which it happens. But the most obvious one is usually that the person goes to see their optometrist or they go to renew their license and suddenly discover, whoops, can't get it. Or the child is complaining about a lot of headaches or various other things. So what happens is the optometrist will see the person and either it's refractive error which they can correct or they see there's a refractive error, but they say, you know what, I would like you to go and see an ophthalmologist and 
we will look at monitoring the situation. I have many patients that come and see me because they've heard um, that I work with the visually impaired. But for me to work, I need to know that the patient has the best corrected vision because I can give them a magnifier, but if the glasses aren't right, then we're magnifying imperfection. When I say I can give them a magnifier, I don't actually sell magnifiers or whatever, but I'm saying they might have one. But using someone else's magnifier is like trying someone else's false teeth. <laughs> they don't work too well. We also find that when we um, are using magnifiers, people often say, well, this works so well, can you give me the strongest one? No, because the stronger we go, the less you can see at a time. But back to the professionals. So there are OTs, there's orientation and mobility officers. Now, O&M is a very, very important field. When you walk out, um, you are orientated to your home and you know your way around. But if we woke up, we were on a long drive somewhere and we suddenly stopped and we get out the car and I say, bye, Mariette, you have no idea where you are. And you would need to try and orientate yourself some way. So that's very important. And the, the O&Ms teach orientation and mobility. They teach you how to find your way around they also teach you how to walk with a cane. You don't just go and buy a cane and now you go off, because that can be quite dangerous, okay? But a cane gives you an extension of yourself and can protect you if there's something on the ground that you can't see. But there could be something higher up and you need to learn the techniques, okay? So O&M could be a very short course, in that the person doesn't have many difficulties, but they live in a place where when there's load shedding, they have absolutely no lights on at all. How can the person manage? Or when they go to the bus stop, there are so many buses and people are impatient and they can't find where they're going. So that person looks at their life, the O&M looks at their life and says, what do we need to teach you? They start in the home and then they go to outside to the point where the person can go back to work or if they're not going back to work, that they can just go out and find their way around quite safely. That's wonderful. And in fact, we had a very interesting um, story that happened. There was a lady who was boarded and she did a talk for us and then she did another one and she said, you know, I was thinking today what made the most difference in my life. And she has all the bells and whistles. She has all sorts of devices. And she said, it's my cane. My cane gave me freedom. And that just makes it so much easier. 
Yeah, and then when people see the right professional, yes. they will get the right help. And that is actually why I thought <coughs> it was important to speak to you. Yeah. Because I had no idea about these these services. So um, O&Ms are as scarce as hen's teeth. Oh. I think that we have, somebody said something the other day, I think possibly 60 in the whole country. Goodness. Okay. Um, and and the training takes quite a while. When I say quite a while, they will see you quite often yeah. over an extended period. But again, you're looking at what are your goals. You say your goals are, I just want to be able to walk comfortably when I go out with someone. Or I want to go back to university and I want to be able to walk around campus I want to be able to go and visit my friends. I want to be able to get on a plane. And they will learn all of that. So then um, there are genetic counselors, which are very important, because there are certain pathologies which are genetic. And there might not have been anybody in your family that you knew of because some people didn't live that long. So one wants to look at the genetics and how it is going to affect you in the long term, and how it affects your family. Genetic counsellors are also a rather rare breed, but they play an essential part. And very often they see somebody and then will refer them to us. So it depends who knows about who. Then there are also people that can assist a patients in terms of coping with their, their disability. So, for example, you will have visually impaired people who have now gone and trained themselves or learned, like, for example, Jennifer Webster, who you did a, a podcast That's with before. Correct. I'll add the link to this one. Okay, and Jennifer is amazing, and we refer a lot of people to her where she can teach them about apps and techniques because she has mastered many of these over years. Um, there are also, for example, people we refer to a weird one, and that is people who work with tax and disability. Because when you are disabled, in any way, there are some tax concessions but you need to know about them yes. and you need to make sure that you're doing them correctly. So, in fact, one of our speakers, and we'll talk about the Low Vision Center of Learning just now, one of our speakers did a talk during COVID and now he's going to do another talk so that people can be attuned to the changes that are happening. So I think that's all for now. I might remember more along the way. But I do think that someone who's listening and who knows someone with low vision or maybe they have a problem themselves, it's good if they become aware of all the help that's Oh, absolutely. There. I think that so many people say, you know, why did no one tell me this before? In fact, I feel very strongly that I would love ophthalmologists and optometrists to refer to OT's earlier on, almost as soon as the diagnosis is made, because OTs look at patients in totality, and we're looking at how to help you attain or maintain your independence. 
And if you have been told you have some or other pathology, you might not have issues. But if we make certain adaptations, you don't have to go through the loss each time. It just becomes a way of life. Many of our patients have given up all their hobbies, have stopped doing all sorts of things. And when I do the assessment, I say, do you still do this? Now, many people are very happy to give up cooking. They've done it for the last 60, 70 years. They're quite happy not to do it. But many say, I love cooking and it's just become too difficult. Mm -hmm. Or I love sewing, but it's just become too difficult. And then you make a plan. And then we look at the options. Mm -hmm. Another issue, is low vision a normal part of aging? No. So <clears throat> low vision is caused by pathology, as I said earlier. We have many patients who are brought in by family members who are, are much older and they are still able to drive and they're still reading without glasses. The aging process in vision is a very natural process, but not everybody will have low vision. And getting back to low vision, how can family members support a loved one with low vision? So I think that that's a huge factor, and that is, for example, I once went to, to see someone where the curtains and the wallpaper were the exact same print, a very, very busy print. There is no way that that man would be able to find his way in a hurry to open anything there. You know, there, there are simple techniques that you can use to highlight furniture. For example, just putting a cloth on a table, seeing that toys aren't left lying around. Remember, for many of these people, they have areas of non-seeing. So when they look at something, it just isn't there and then they fall over things. There are three factors that are very important in low vision, and that is eye can see. Illumination is the eye, is that you need good lighting. Lighting is very, very important. Then you get contrast and you get size. So if we look at the illumination, many patients will say that when they are outside or sitting with their back to the window, then they can read. Or at certain times of the day, they can read. But other times, it becomes very difficult for them. Um, so you say, okay, if that's when it's difficult, don't do it then. Okay? The contrast is, for example, how often have you gone to a function and they serve food on platters, patterned platters, so it could be like they have a lot of biscuits on the design and then the patient want, the person wants to take something and it's not a biscuit, it's the design. Oh, I see. So what you want to do is you want to have high contrast. So even in old age homes, they use floral tablecloths so it doesn't show the dirt. But for the person who's having difficulty, use a black plastic mat under the white plate. So 
we had a patient, um, the family member said to me one day, my father makes such a noise when he eats. And I explained to him that his father can't see the edge of the food on the plate if it's not clearly marked. You know, for example, you've got a very busy floral plate and they're trying to pick up the food, but it's not actually food. Or they don't have depth perception. If your eyes aren't working together properly, you don't have depth perception. And then you're not sure how far something is from you. And that explains why you make the noise. Yes, with a cutlery. Yeah. So contrast is Contrast very is very important. And then size. So if you look at your hand, and, and your listeners can do that, if you look at your hand out in front of you extended, you can see your hand and your whole arm. But if I come closer now, I can see the detail of the fine lines, but now I can see very limited. And so that's always the debate in terms of magnifying too much. So we want to give the best magnification with a little bit in reserve. It's better to come back more often and up your magnification if you need to, rather than, because if you're going to go too high in magnification, you'll literally be seeing one letter at a time. Mm, That makes sense. Now, if you get a patient who needs to be motivated to adapt to low vision, and to solutions which may be unfamiliar. Okay. How do you motivate them? So I said there were the three things that were important. There are another three. That is the quality of your sleep, the weather, and emotions. Now, the quality of your sleep is very important. Because very often, A, elderly people don't sleep so well. Um, And when you are stressed it's hard to maintain focus, just generally. And I I mean maintain focus not only in the visual sense, but to actually be able to focus on the task at hand. And very often somebody will phone and say they need to come in, their vision has gone down so much or their vision is so bad. And then you say, what else has been going on? They say, well, there's been a huge loss in my family, we've had a death or we have illness, all of that impacts your life. Your eyes are part of your body and everything that affects your body affects your eyes. And the overriding factor is attitude in that very often we can have somebody with very little vision but they're extremely motivated and they do very well as opposed to somebody who's not prepared to adapt. And I think that it's very important to look at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's theory on, on loss. And if you look at the, the, those five stages, first of all, there's denial. So they're constantly cleaning their glasses because I'm just not seeing so well today or whatever. There's anger. Why me? I've always been such a good person. There's bargaining. If, if God will just let me see my daughter getting married or my first grandchild, there's depression and there's acceptance. 
Now, very often people say, you know, I've accepted my lot in life and, and I'm okay that I've lost my eyes. It's fine. And very often it's, that's what the Lord has given me. And that's not acceptance. That's resignation. Acceptance is, I have a visual problem and I need various devices for all sorts of things. But I'm coming to terms with it and I'm learning I've made a lot of adaptations in my home, and that's acceptance. Mm -hmm. So one of the other people that you might need to see is a psychologist or a trauma counselor. Again, what caused the loss of vision? If it's something that you've always known about, it's always kind of been there, you know about it. But waking up and suddenly having lost your vision is a totally different ball game. And all of those things are important. But I think that if people understand the different concepts, so again, when we are, when the family is sitting there and you explain that basically what this means is that your mom needs things to be five times bigger for her in order to see it. So it's not huge. It's making her telephone list a bit bigger or it's getting her a whiteboard in a kitchen that she can write down her grocery list. I always tell my patients to have a whiteboard in the kitchen. I write everything on the board in the kitchen. If anybody needs to tell anybody something or when I've got to buy groceries and as I'm leaving I take a photograph but every time you're seeing that board in the kitchen, you're actually having a visual memory of what's on the board. And it also, by constantly seeing those things, you are stimulating that vision every time. I cannot stress enough how important it is to use that vision. And even where, where I work with people who are having difficulty reading, what I recommend they do is that they download the audiobook from Amazon as well as the Kindle book. You use the two together, and that's a technique called immersion reading. Now, although that is an expensive option, what it means is you are keeping that visual memory going oh. of recognizing words. Um, you are still keeping that active, but you are learning to listen. And when you listen and look, you have a two-grade higher retention of what you've just read. That's okay. a very practical way. Yeah, so that's called immersion reading, if you ever... And in fact, with immersion reading, if you use Word on your computer, if you go onto Word or what you're working in and you click on Immersion Reader, you can click it to make it louder, but it also changes the format into better spacing so that you can see more clearly. I had no idea. Very good um, thing for everybody who's working, particularly when you're working late at night and you're feeling a bit tired, it's a good idea to do that. Thank you. What would your advice be if an individual or their loved one experiences low vision and they have no idea where to start? 
Um, this is a global problem. I'm on many Facebook groups for people with visual problems. And in many places, many countries, you can only go for treatment if you get referred and follow the chain, the correct chain. Now, to an extent, that is true here as well. But over here, um, somebody listening in could phone and say, how can I get someone to help? Now, in terms of occupational therapists, there are far more occupational therapists in the country than there are optometrists or ophthalmologists. And as I said, all reading, all information, 75% or something, comes from your visual system. So if you can help people to make that learning easier. The question is, if you're baking, do you make your recipe bigger or do you have to read with a magnifying glass? You want to bake. It's not about reading. Make the recipe bigger. Okay? What is the end goal that you are striving for here? It is the baked goods. It's the baked goods. And so what you can do is start making a recipe book of your favorite things. Again, back to our whiteboard. I often say to my patients, take a, your recipe and write the ingredients and you can tick them off as you do them. When you're baking, use a black measuring cup. When you're measuring flour or milk, use a white measuring cup for cocoa, for raisins, for anything else. So again, change lighting and the contrast to make a huge difference. And I'm sure it becomes interesting in the end if you can think how to overcome these Absolutely. obstacles. And, and for many of the people, they say, well, I cut myself. Use a colored glove on your hand when you're chopping so that you can see your hand. Mm. Or use one of those glass chopping containers. Yes. Now, this question that we've just looked at actually leads to the rest. Where to start? Because you are very active in the Low Vision Center of Learning. Could you tell us about it and about your role in the center? Okay. So, as I said, I've actually been involved in Low Vision for the last 37 years. And what happened is we've always said, um, Hazel and I were working at UJ, and we've always said we really want more people to know about this amazing field. It's really a very, very exciting field. And we can keep people independent for so much longer, if not the rest of their lives. And at that stage, we were always talking about creating a dynamic list of professionals. Anyway, um, Hazel had gone private, I went private later, and then in about 2017, a colleague came over from America, and about 12 of us met just to have a discussion with a particular piece of equipment that she was involved with. And we had the most scintillating inspiring hour or two and we said why don't we do this more often we always talk about it let's get together 
And we started doing monthly talks. And at that stage, I think that's where I, in fact, met you. We would have between five and 40, depending on the speaker. But most time it was five to 12 people at these monthly talks. And people used to say, can you record it? Whatever. And then we decided to have a low vision conference. And we made it multidisciplinary because it's important that people realize that the synergy is so much stronger. And so we had these 55 people at the first conference. We had a second conference. And in 2020, 2020 vision, we were going to have this big event. Well, of course, COVID happened. What we did then was we decided, let's start doing these things online. And our first webinar was on the 3rd of June, I think, 2020. Since then, we've had over 100 webinars. And these webinars are open to all professionals, but also to the patients and the teachers, basically anybody who might be able to help somebody who's visually impaired. Obviously, because we are educating, they need to be at a, at a standard where people are learning. But many of our patients have loved them because they say, finally, I can understand my pathology. So, A number of years ago, also in 2018, one of uh, my friends said to me, she said, you know, it's so difficult to meet people when you're visually impaired. And I said, you know what? People have always asked me why I don't do a group. And I said, I never wanted to, but you're going to be the first person on that group today. And we started a group for professionals who are visually impaired. And what I mean by professionals who are visually impaired anybody who who works. So if you were visually impaired and you then went and studied, it's for you. And if you were a professional and you now have lost your vision, the group is for you. And very strong bonds have been formed with these people. And they're a very good source of information for each other. And what will happen is somebody will say, I've got to do my tax and what is this? And that will sometimes bring about a discussion. Hey, we need to do another webinar or we can invite somebody to talk. So that was the one group. We, we tried to do a thing where we actually met socially. And in person. In person. And that we, we went to a restaurant a few times, but that was a bit difficult because many of the people who have visual problems also have hearing problems because you don't realize how much we watch people's faces when we talk, not only to lip read, but to look at whether the expression ties up with what they're saying. And that's quite difficult for people who are visually impaired because they often miss those subtle cues like that you you actually laughing when you're saying something. Yes. So it was at our house one day and one of the girls said to me, can't we join in with these talks? At that stage, they were talks for professional people where you came to. 
And then we said, I'll tell you what, we'll start doing some, which is what we started doing. And those were online? And no, those were also in person. And they were really, really good. In fact, one lady said to me, oh, no, my dear, she said, I don't want to come and hear from other people how miserable they are with this damn disease. I said, no, if, if that's the way you feel, none of them are like that. She came to the session and she said, that was amazing. Could I please host the next one? Then COVID happened. So once we started with COVID, we did open it to the patient's being able to listen in. And for many of them, they have really enjoyed the talks. And they often say, it is a little bit above my head. In fact, it's very much above my head. But I did get a nugget of information that I will treasure. Uh, so this became, in 2018, the Low Vision Center of Learning. And we have a little figure on our website called Eric. And Eric is behind a lot of what we've done in that we were guided, I suppose, from long ago that we need to do education. Eric stands for education, resources, information and courses. So last year in August, we started our website. Our website is www dot l v c o l dot c o dot z a so that's the first letters of the low vision center of learning in the early days when we were doing our webinars we would have 20 people register today we can have up to close on 400 registrations which has been amazing and not only that but we have attendees from 36 countries and 148 cities around the world. It's fantastic. We have people online from Egypt, from Pakistan, from wherever, and our problems are worldwide. We all have the same problems. We all have the same problems in rural areas with um, the demographics, you know, in certain areas, they don't have the facilities. And what has happened now is that somebody can phone and say, I live in Pofader, but I've heard this podcast. And is there a way in which my family member could be helped? And with the webinars, they are fantastic because they're on our website. You can go on and see past webinars. They are free. And if somebody says to me, my mother has macular degeneration or my child loves maths, but they've said because he's visually impaired, he must do maths literacy, which is such a tragedy. We have a talk by Reinhard Krier, who did a talk where Reinhard got his doctorate and his studies were around mathematics. And... There are so many ways in which we can help people today. I have a couple of questions. If people want to be part of the webinars as they are happening, yes. how can they do that? So um, if you go onto our Facebook page, we do have a page there called the Low Vision Center of Learning. We also have a Facebook group, which is um, 
South African people are visually impaired. But if you contact, if you go to www.lvcol, you can go on there and register directly. So we will be finishing off our webinars at the end of November. But just a couple that we will be having still this year. <clears throat> we have a talk on ethics and we have a talk on the, the new things happening, for example, in retinitis pigmentosa. So there are lots of very interesting talks. And Belinda, for professionals, and I think South African professionals, they can also attain CPD points, yes. not so. Yes. So as professionals, we, we need to maintain your profession. So it's one CPD point, but you have to be online and fill in a questionnaire to do that. Yes. In, in my experience, you are always very clear on how one does it and what to do. Yeah. So the best place for people to go would be the website. Yes. And I will attach that link to the podcast. Yes. And then also I will include the name of the Facebook page or pages in yes. the podcast notes. Yes. I yeah. think you are doing wonderful work. Thank you so much. I must so tell much. you, I'm so glad it's going around the world. Thank you. It's really been fun. It has been, it's been a lot of work. But what is very interesting is as of this past year, 22, an interest in low vision became recognized as one of the 15 fields of interest for occupational therapists. Oh, that's wonderful. One doesn't get a lot of training in that when you study, or certainly not when I did. And what was interesting is that as an occupational therapist, I'm looking at the patient in totality. So although you've come to see me about your vision, I'm looking at all sorts of things. I'm looking at your posture. I'm looking at the fact that you might have a tremor or that you tell me you also have Parkinson's or various other things. And we need to consider all of those things. For example, you can't give a patient a magnifier if they've got a tremor. So what would the options be? And also, when you are visually impaired, you work very close. So I'm always talking to the patients, and particularly with their young children, that they are working and doing things that they're working against a wall. So you're working vertically and stretching your arms up. Because when you are constantly sitting, it affects your breathing. It affects everything. Uh, yeah. Just a quick explanation of what I do. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles for my own platform and for various magazines and digital platforms. My website contains a growing collection of content on emotional and physical health, parenting, love relationships and the life challenges and stages we all face. Each episode or article showcases a therapist, coach or other wellness professional so you can get to know them and easily find an expert who will resonate with you, should you need one. 
And if you're a wellness professional interested in being my podcast guest or being featured in an article on my platform, take a look at services on my website and send me an email. Now, back to my guest. And last question, uh, could you tell listeners where your practice is located physically? So um, I work at a, a practice in Heathway Square, which is called the Low Vision Care Centre. Oh, that was the other thing about our website. If you go onto our website, where there are people around the country who work in low vision, you can go on and see areas. Yeah, that's an exciting development. Yes. So yes. That, that's also a, a very good place for them to search, for someone yes. to help. yes. But they can always just send an email to our website and we can see where we can refer them to. Thank you. May I ask you your fun question? My fun question, yes. <laughs> I know that roses have a special place in your heart. Ah, yes. In an ideal world, Belinda, if a rose were to be specially cultivated to carry your name... What would it look like and smell like? Sure. Gosh, now that is a difficult one. So I used to work in something else which was very color orientated. And gold is the color of wisdom, which I hope one day to have. And so a gold rose would be good. Oh. But I would love it to have a beautiful smell. That sounds beautiful. Thank you. And I now think if someone would like to honor you one day, they would know exactly <laughs> what to do. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you for introducing us to the world of low vision. I have spoken to several people that have been helped through you and your work and the fact that you refer people to the help they need. Thank you. I think that it's very important to remember that there is a big team and you're only as strong as the weakest link. And I think that it's important that one builds a strong link when you're working. So thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I'd be honoured if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. If this episode inspired you, please share it with someone you care about. Go to my website www.marietsneiman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on how to live a happier life and have more fulfilling relationships. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneeman, Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me with original music by Mark marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 